so blessed with Jim speaking to us this week, haven't we? And one of the things that I have always appreciated from Jim from the very first day I met him is his command of language. For a number of years, I was in a Greek study group with him every week, and the, the things that I learned just in those weekly gatherings were amazing. He only reads scripture in its original language. He's also completely fluent in German. I've heard him preach in German. I know it was good. I don't understand what he said, but I know it was really good. And furthermore, he reads Kittle in German as well. I, I'm working on the English version of Kittle. But in 1980, uh, Jim and his family were headed to Columbia for the summer to do some work with Wycliffe ministry, uh, uh, missionaries there. And so they flew out of um, New York. I was taking care of their car in Princeton, New Jersey for the summer. And at the end of the summer, um, it was time for them to return. I drove up uh, the New Jersey Turnpike on Friday afternoon rush hour to Kennedy Airport. I got to Kennedy and waited outside customs and no, they're, they're not coming out. And I finally called a mutual friend of ours in Princeton who said, yeah, they called, they missed the flight. You've got to go back up same time tomorrow. I said, oh, okay. So Saturday, same thing. I make the trek all the way up to Kennedy on Long Island. And there they are, Jim and Janie and their, their kids, Mark and Corey. And Jim said, yeah, he says, I was afraid we were going to miss that flight. He says, and we're in this taxi and I'm telling this guy to hurry up, hurry up. And it seems like he's going slower and slower. And we get there, and the flight's already left. I'm really sorry. I say, hey, you know, that's, that's all right. So 10 years later, <laughs> I had Jim come and preach for me when I was in Minnesota. And we were reliving old times and talking about that event from the summer. And he said, yeah, I was just afraid we were going to miss that flight. And I kept yelling at that taxi driver to hurry up. And I'm yelling, despacio, despacio. And the guy's going slower and slower. I said... Jim, despacio means slower. <laughs> he is so great in every language except Spanish. It is the only place I have ever outshone Jim Edwards. So Jim, come and share with us. Yo soy Jaime el Stupido in Espanol. No, no, yeah, you're still doing it. Um, here's a really sad thing is in Spanish, there are two verbs for to be. And the verb that you just formed, the, the, the version you just used, ser, has to do with a permanent existence. I am permanent. That's ex the, other, the other form, estar, is something that's temporary. So you've said this is a permanent condition. I'm afraid it is. Okay, I guess. Oh, man. That, that was such an absurd moment in my life. I really was. I was shouting at this man. What Dina didn't tell you, I almost beat him up. I was so angry at him. He went home and told his wife, this frenetic American was screaming at me to slow down. I did, and he almost killed me. It was... I've... It was the stupidest thing I know I have done. 
John Moser and Troy Onsager, we owe them a big apology. Uh, apology. <laughs> applause. Uh, do you guys like that slick uh, program? It's pretty, prof pretty professional, isn't it? Right. Way to go, guys. Troy, I had him as a student. He came from Montana. They build tough boys out there. Sometimes I wonder, though, if he's not gotten soft here in uh, California. I had breakfast with him this morning, and we're eating away, and Troy says to me, how are you dealing with the altitude here in the mountains? <laughs> Jeez. I'm from Colorado. <laughs> I've climbed 1914. I've climbed the Eiger. I said, I think I'm dealing with it well, Troy. <laughs> I, I don't have any feelings of pulmonary edema. <laughs> Cerebral edema is not, come on. Troy lives in Escalon. They, um, they raise almonds there. I went to visit Troy, and uh, I said, Troy, why don't you call them right? They're almonds. They're not almonds. Whoever ate an almond. He says, no, they're not. They're almonds. Why is that? I said. He said, well, they take this big truck, and they drive out in the almond orchards, and that truck grabs the trunk and shakes the L out of them. I still worry he's getting soft. <laughs> Has not Carol Kaminsky done a great job? Is that you back there? Just outstanding. She talked so much about Salem, though, <laughs> and witches. I was thinking maybe we should have. Um, had an exorcism before you left. <laughs> I couldn't think of who could do it. Then I thought of David Werner. <laughs> but, and actually I think it would work because David, David could make us laugh. And you know, the one thing the devil hates is to be laughed at. So David, try to work... Uh, the devil and a mail call. <laughs> Shake the L out of him. We are considering these reports and echoes from the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And then also some perhaps more distant echoes in the early church. In order to, to think biblically about this metaphor of the body of Christ, that God chooses incarnation as his means 
of accomplishing his end and affecting his power in this world. And of course, we claim that incarnation for Christ. It's an essential element of our, of our creed, and no other religion in the world makes that claim. Christianity has many points of overlap, especially in ethics, with many of the religions of the world. Everybody's noted that. Um, C.S. Lewis's book, Abolition of Man, goes through the appendix and shows in any number of ways when you can take sexual ethics, you can take the ethics of covenant, the ethics of, of speech, uh, violence, and that Christianity uh, agrees in large part with many of the ethical systems of the world. There's, our contribution there is important, but it's not entirely unique. But at the incarnation it is that God becomes not just like a human being or a partial human being or a temporary human being, but fully human. So much that he takes on suffering. But the incarnation doesn't stop there. The body of Christ is an incarnational image. And, and Martin Luther says we are Christ to our siblings, our brothers, sisters, and those around us. It's a dangerous thing to say. When I first heard it, it seemed to me wrong and irreverent, but I think it's correct. And Luke seems to say the same because, as we've seen, he takes these, these reports of Jesus, and then he shows how they have this echo in the early church. It's quite nice. And today we want to look at one with regard to discipleship, and more specifically, the role of facing hardship and even suffering in discipleship. We are all aware that the Gospels uh, portray Jesus as having... Uh, two phases to his ministry, at least the synoptic gospels do, this is not as clear in John. And the first phase is the Galilean phase, in which Jesus is circumambulating the Sea of Galilee, he he's, uh, has a ministry of presence, especially on the northwest quadrant of the Sea of Galilee. And he's crisscrossing the lake, he's going back and forth from Bethsaida to Chorazin to Capernaum to Nazareth. And if you were to draw a map of the Gospel of Mark, Matthew, or Luke, all the places that Jesus goes, you would just have lots of scratch marks there, especially on the northwest quadrant of the Sea of Galilee. And if you were to ask yourself or anyone else, what is the purpose of these trips, it wouldn't be easy to answer that question. It would just be easy to say, well, he was a circuit rider wasn't going anywhere. He was a presence in that area proclaiming the kingdom of God. That would seem to me to be a very good answer. But then somewhere in Jesus' ministry, we do not know how long, whether it's months or years, he changes his focus and starts to head toward Jerusalem. And instead of this shotgun approach in Galilee, we now have a rifle shot to Jerusalem. And especially in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has uh, some 15 references to either going to Jerusalem or the necessity of his suffering in Jerusalem. These are called passion predictions. The first one begins 
in the ninth chapter, verse 22, in which Jesus says, this is the opening one, it is necessary, there's that word of predestination, day in Greek, this must happen. Jesus is not saying, I'm, I, I feel like I need to do this. He's not even saying, I have concluded I need to do this. He is saying, it must happen. And that's, that's a divine passive. God wills me for the Son of Man to suffer many things, to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed, and on the third day to be raised. All these passive voice verbs. These are going to happen to me. He's not electing them. He is submitting to them willfully out of faith that the one who does elect them, God, is completing his will through them. The second one comes in verse 44. Uh, Put this in your ears. That's a Hebraism, incidentally. Um, Listen up. Here's something you need to hear and remember, says Jesus. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. The hands of Anthropon. The first one is who's going to be guilty for this rejection and killing of the Son of Man? Well, it's the Jewish leaders, but not this one. Anthropon means human beings. It's not sufficient to say, well, the Jews killed Jesus. Yes, they were, certainly the Jewish leaders were behind that. But there was complicity on the part of the Roman leadership. And we also know from some of the people in the crowd who were shouting for Jesus' death, it was also complicity among the locals. And this goes on and on until we come into the 18th chapter of Luke. And here we have the climactic passion prediction in verse 31. This is the end of the central section of Luke. This closes it off. Luke has this big central section in which Jesus presents himself as the way. Scholars talk about um, this being the, the travel journey, the, the, the travel narrative of Luke. It's really not a travel narrative. Luke's not, or Jesus doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Um, Galilee is simply not 10 chapters away from Uh, Jerusalem. It's not that far. This is, the central section in Luke is all about Jesus' teaching about discipleship. We're not sure where he's going. There's almost no place names and no travel markers. So it's not really a travel narrative. This is the way and, and the gospel will be called the way in the book of Acts. Jesus is now exemplifying the way. But this closes off in chapter 18, verse 31. Jesus took along the 12, and he said to them, Look, we are going up to Jerusalem. We're going to see exactly that same same, uh, statement from Paul. And all things that have been written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be completed. There is that scripture again. This has just impressed and impregnated Jesus' ministry. He is not here to do his own thing. He is not here to put on a divine and astonishing show. He is here to show that his ministry has been shaped by and is understandable in only the great fulfillment of the historical narrative of Scripture. 
all things written by the prophets about the Son of Man. He will be betrayed to the nations. He will be mocked. He will be hubris thesatai. He will be abused. This is a very rough word. Mistreated is not strong enough. Cruelty is involved in this word. He will be spit upon. There is scorn. It doesn't hurt to get spit on. It's worse than being beaten up because of the indignity and the scorn. He will be whipped. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. He will be raised. Passive voice once again. The disciples heard him say these things. But their meaning was obscured. It was hidden from them. And so once again we see that God is prohibiting understanding until a different time in which that understanding can be clearer and more complete. This isn't a surprise to us. Um, we, we say perhaps it's even natural because, of course, Christ came to suffer. When we say the Apostles' Creed, born of the Virgin Mary, what's the next word? Wow. Is that the best we can do? Uh, uh, loving, uh, traveling preacher, great storyteller, affirmer of humanity, a healer, an encourager, wouldn't those be worthy? Suffered. The creed says, uh, that is the purpose. It had to be done. It was necessary day. Now, when we go to the gospel of uh, the book of Acts, we see something really interesting, and that is that beginning in chapter 13, uh, Luke now shifts his emphasis to the second of the great protagonists of the book of Acts, and that, of course, is Paul. Generally speaking, Peter is the protagonist in the first 12 chapters of Acts, and Paul becomes the protagonist in the remainder. And Paul makes a number of different trips to Jerusalem. We always consider Paul this apostle to the Gentiles, and he is, but it's interesting he makes four particular trips to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And the entire mission journeys, the three missionary expeditions of Paul, are told in terms of his making this final journey to Jerusalem like Jesus where he also will have what we might call a passion experience. And also like Jesus, there are three predictions that come to Paul about his intended suffering. The first one begins in Acts chapter 20. This is in the story, that great sermon where Paul 
preaches to the elders of Ephesus who take a boat and come down and meet him in Miletus so that Paul can keep moving to Jerusalem. Now, if some of you have been to, the, to uh, Turkey today, uh, Tim Fair will know this and smile because when you go to Miletus today, if you do go to Miletus, and many people who go to Ephesus go to Miletus, you will not see any water. It's high and dry. And it's remarkable to know that in Paul's day, Miletus was a peninsula that had four harbors around it. You go there today, and you are 10 miles from the ocean. But in Paul's day, this was a gigantic bay. And the Caister River has flowed into this for these hundreds of years and silted it up and pushed out the land from the, res uh, the uh, residual mud and things all the way out now, 10 miles to the ocean. And when you go to the ocean, you can see that it's still doing this because there's this brown arm that's reading, re reaching clear out into the Aegean that in another two or 300 years will be a huge peninsula. The silting up. So these elders come down to meet with Paul. And in verse uh, 23 of chapter 20, Paul says this, But the Holy Spirit testifies in every place to me, saying that chains and tribulation await me in Jerusalem. So like Jesus, who must go, it is necessary that the Son of Man do this. This is not an elective journey. Paul says that he also, in going to Jerusalem, has this divine forewarning that it will be a season of rejection and suffering. Two more instances, chapter 21, verse 4. As Paul is moving towards Jerusalem, that was in, of course, Miletus. Now he's in a town called Tyre, um, still there today. In chapter 21, verse 4. When Paul got to Tyre, he looked up some of the disciples and stayed with them seven days. And they were saying to Paul, through the Spirit, that he ought not go to Jerusalem. They're warning him that danger lies ahead. And continuing just one step further south to Ptolemaeus into the region of Philip and his daughters, Paul, in chapter 21, verse 10, we read this, verses 10 through 14. While we were remaining many days, a certain prophet by the name of Agabus came down from um, Judea. Now, we've, we have encountered Agabus once before, right? In chapter 11, verse 28, he predicted correctly, as it turns out, a famine. So he's betting 1,000% here. When this guy shows up, uh, I suppose you're happy because his prophecy will come true if it's a good prophecy. You're not maybe as happy if it's otherwise. Verse 11, Agabus came up to us. He took the belt of Paul. 
he bound himself head and hands with it, and he said, Thus says the Holy Spirit. Now, this is an enacted prophecy. We see some of these enactment uh, prophecies in Jeremiah in the Old Testament, also Ezekiel lying on one side and lying on the other side, running around naked, the first streakers. Um, These are enacted prophecies. Object lessons, powerful ways to communicate a truth. Thus says the Holy Spirit, the man to whom this belt belongs, the Jews will do the same in Jerusalem. They will hand him over, betray him into the hands of the nations. Sounds exactly like Jesus. And when we heard these things, we, we besought, we appealed to Paul, as well as the locals, not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul said to us, oh, don't play with my emotions like this. Don't make this appeal to me. Paul admits that this is a difficult decision. He says, don't um, uh, trouble my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem in behalf of the name of of our Lord Jesus. And when we could see that he was convinced, we held our tongues and we said, okay, let the Lord's will be done. Luke seems to be giving us an echo of a report. He seems to be telling us that the way of Jesus, of suffering, is typical, it is not exceptional for the church. I talked about this theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. How does God manifest himself among us? The church has always hoped, it's not just our day, in which we love ease and comfort, we love the victory circle, we certainly don't love uh, the outside circle, the external circle. We want to be at the center of events and attention, the spotlight. I suppose most generations have been like that. That this theology of the cross, where does God most clearly manifest himself and what is God's most powerful work in this world, it's not in the glorification, it is in his act of self-abasement to win our salvation. I want to talk about this today. Not because um, I want to major in the tragic. I want to be a good coach who's warning you in the, mar- the, uh, the dressing room here before the game that we're going out onto the field. It's going to be a good game, but they play rough ball. You have to know this. And you will play it effectively if you know it. And if you don't, you won't play the game effectively. 
The word martyr, M-A-R-T-Y-R, as you all know, derives from the Greek word martyrain, which means to bear witness, to testify. And it's a wonderful word. The most genuine and the most ultimate form of witness is the witness of our life. And that's what this word means. It doesn't just mean our death, although it may include that. But it means the witness of our life and our death. Once again, Heidelberg 1. Jesus, my Savior, what? In life and death. Martyrdom is something unique to Christianity. I'm doing a lot of reading now in this first Christian generation, and I have just reread Arthur Darby Knox's book on conversion. And he entitled this book, Knock was this brilliant guy at 29, he becomes a full professor at Harvard, and uh, just one of these polymaths who seemed to know so much about everything, and was a great understander of the early church. He said, he entitled this book Conversion because he said, none of the religions in the ancient world, with the single exception of Judaism, understood conversion in the way that Christianity did. If you were going to be a good worshiper in the emperor cult, you would go to some place, buy a, a lamb, or even if a, maybe a better gift would be a bull, slay it, give it to him, say the right prayers, have the priest say the right prayers, and go back and live your life the same way. You've done your job. You think, well, that's a cheap form of religion. No, not at all. It's like paying your taxes. Uh, isn't tomorrow the, or today's the 15th, right? Oh, I, oh I'll have to pay them late then. Um, um, you know, what do we do? We, we pay our taxes. My friend Mike Larson works it out. He says, all right, you owe $3,000. I write the check, send it in, and I have been a good citizen. I've done everything. And if you say, well, were you converted by that? We'd say, well, no. Conversion has nothing to do with this. That's the way the ancients saw religion. It was a matter of proper observance. It wasn't about conversion. It was about placating and appeasing gods and gods, giving them the right honor, if you and I are going to meet President Obama, we will be tutored on how to shake his hand, what to say, how close to say, stand, and, and what not to say. How long to stand there? Ten minutes will be long enough, then we have to move. And we will follow those advice, that advice, and we will have think, we've done it well. We have observed the formalities, and this has honored President Obama. But if we say, were you converted by that? We would say, well, no. There was no talk of conversion. Arthur Darby Knox says, Christianity is talking about conversion. And he says the Christian church was powerful in communicating this in two ways. 
The first was that it had a mobile organization called the church. You didn't have to go to a holy site and do some prayers there and go back home. The church came to you. In any place, and unlike the Jewish religion, that you had to have at least 10 circumcised uh, bar mitzvah males, you didn't have to have that in Christianity. So this church is this remarkable missionary organ, as Harnock called it, because it's portable. The entire faith can be and is present in this community, and it can be anywhere, everywhere, and it needs to be. The second point at which uh, the church becomes unique is that Christians have a practice that no other religion in the ancient world have, and it's called martyrdom. Arthur Darby Knox says this, there are no pagan martyrs known to us. Now, for a Harvard professor to say something that categorically general is dangerous. Surely we could find in the Isis cult in the Mithra cult, in some one of the Caesar cults, the emperor cults, all of the cults, and I talked about them earlier, there were really scores and scores of them. The ancient society, ancient religion, the ancient world loved societies, trade organizations, these associations of belonging and identity, very, very important. They proliferated in many different forms and ways. We do not know of a martyr in any of those. And yet, already in the New Testament, Jesus is martyred. James is martyred. Stephen is martyred. Paul is martyred. Polycarp is martyred. I'll read the story from that in a moment. During the fire of Nero in Rome, 67, Christians are martyred. They're tied to stakes in Nero's garden and lighted on fire to entertain and to enlighten the guests and burn to death. And then they're killed in similar ways under Domitian at the end of the first century and variously throughout the first, second centuries and especially in 251 under Decius, they're really slaughtered in a much more systematic way. There are many scholars who say it was martyrdom that was the chief means by which Christianity came into the public eye and remained in the public mind in the early church. I believe that we need to recall this aspect of our faith, and for two reasons. Number one, in our lifetime, in the time that this West Coast Presbyterian Pastors Conference is in existence, we have come into a martyr's age. When I first came here in 1971, we met, I was one of those fellows that met at Forest Home, and I was just now, just then, a youth minister working with John Stevens First Presbyterian Church, Colorado Springs. And then next year we met at Ponderosa Lodge, 72 or 3. We don't know that there were any martyrs. There may have been, but we didn't know about it. 
already today since we have met a year ago there are literally thousands of martyrs most of them in the Islamic world my friend Roger Morlang is translating the Kamwe New Test Old Testament he's working with three Nigerians in northern Nigeria all three of them have been displaced they're living in caves they're living in barns because of the Boko Haram their Villages have been destroyed. Their lives have been completely uprooted. They're still in exile. Try to work on this today. It's important for us in our public worship to remember the martyrs. This is a Christian act. It has been in the early church because it reminds us that there are people in the world who are paying an ultimate price for their faith and they need our prayers. They need to be remembered. We know this. Amnesty International tells us this. We, we don't need to have Amnesty to tell us, but they help because they're not Christian. That a prisoner sitting in some cell locked into the Ukraine or the Soviet Union, East Germany, doesn't matter where. If somebody throws a stone into a cell in which there's a piece of paper that says, you are remembered, you are not forgotten, that's enough to keep that person alive. The worst thing that we can do to people, I talked about this before, is exactly what Stalinism wanted to do. Cross that line, become an opponent to me, and I will expunge your existence. It will be als ob du nie existiert hast. That's the way they said it in German. It will be as though you never existed. When we remember the martyrs, we not only show solidarity with those who need our help, pray for the needy, that's a Christian prayer, but we prepare ourselves and our people for the fact that we too must bear witness in life and in death to our faith. Here's the prayer of Polycarp. It's the most famous of all the martyrs. You all know that he was burned to death. Horrible way to die. Don't even like to think about it, so I won't. Keep thinking of the way I choose to be martyred. I can't think of a good way. <laughs> Old age. <laughs> Old age. That may be one of the worst. Um, so, uh, poly, martyrdom of Polycarp. Chapter 14, they did not nail him, but they tied him instead. I want you just to listen. What's the emphasis in this? This is the martyr's prayer. Because you're, as soon as I say that, we have a connotation come into our mind. I want you to listen, uh, not impose. Then having placed the hands of Polycarp behind him and having bound him, he was like a splendid ram chosen from the great flock for the sacrifice, a burnt offering prepared and acceptable to God. Polycarp looked up to heaven and prayed this, O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, 
the God of angels and powers and of all creation, and of the whole race of the righteous who live in your presence. I bless you because you have considered me worthy of this day and hour, so that I might receive a place among the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection, to eternal life, both of body and of soul, in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them in your presence today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as you have prepared and revealed beforehand, and have now accomplished. You are you who are the undeceiving and true God. For this reason indeed, for all things I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and high, heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be glory to you, with him and the Holy Spirit, now and for ages to come. Now, perhaps you're asking, does a person uh, about to be burned on a funeral pyre preach or pray such a, a elaborate and uh, exquisite, excellent prayer? And perhaps not. Perhaps the author of the martyrdom has, in fact, improved this somewhat. I don't care about that. What is being prayed and what is not being prayed? The remarkable thing here, and this is why I, I want to uphold martyrdom, is that it is being embraced. It is being received with gratitude. It is being acknowledged as a right and holy way for me to worship God. We do not see his killers being criticized and berated. We see the martyr accepting his death and bequeathing his life in faith and in trust and even in joy to the God who is its rightful recipient. Dennis Tarr was telling me last night that a cell phone video is available of these 21 Orthodox martyrs that were killed in Libya on the beach. That while they were beheading them, some one of them had a, a cell phone or, that had an audio recorder. And it, it was on <clears throat> while these beheadings were taking place. And you can get it. I think Dennis could maybe help us. And the remarkable thing is that as they are dying, they are praying. And they are praying for their killers. They're not saying, you dirty bastards, we'll get even with you. They're praying for them. And then their voice stops, but somebody else's is still praying. They're praying, then their voice stops. So we actually hear these prayers. And these are people in our time. I mean, this, this happened less than a year ago. Christmas time, something like that, wasn't it? February. February. <clears throat> um, these are the voices of the martyrs. 
This is the voice of Polycarp. Don't feel badly if you require my life. It's the greatest gift I can give to the Lord. This is why this testimony of discipleship must include the ultimate form, and that is not simply my life, but my death. And the life that is truly relinquished to God, Bonhoeffer tells us this, when Christ calls a person, he calls him to come and die, once I have died to this world through faith, giving up my body is actually simply the ultimate form of something I've already done. I want to close with a story of a martyr that is, um, for those of you who know me, it'll be about Germany, and it is. Um, I, one of the reasons I've spent so much of my life learning about uh, Nazi Germany is because it seems to me this is where the modern world comes into existence. Everything from the saline abortion to a total war to uh, ultimate destruction, uh, ideology over all morality. This, they all come into existence in the World War II. The world that we know was born then. And there's a lot for us to learn from it because in those years, 33 to 45, the gloves were off and we see things absolutely clearly. There was a group of students at the University of Munich, college kids, they actually three brother and sister teams, that's really cool. And one professor by the name of Kurt Huber, who, these were all in Hitler Youth too, incidentally, and all the boys had been on the Eastern Front and they'd seen what the German army did there and they were, they were gassed. The Einsatzgruppen that were shooting, lining up all the Jews and shooting them, burning their houses. They came back to the University of Munich on break and they said, we, we can't allow this to happen. And they, of course, said, well, there's nothing we can do. Hitler has total power. They all said, that's, that's right. We can't change the war, but we must do something. And so this group formed a little newspaper called the White Rose. They were in Munich. They made uh, six editions, uh, six... Um, they published six uh, editions. <clears throat> now, it was hard to publish a newspaper. In order to get a mimeograph machine, that was a capital offense, if you had one. You couldn't buy the stamps. That, too, was a capital offense. If you were caught disseminate, that was a capital offense. If you were caught participating in that, that was a capital offense. So this was highly dangerous. But they were college kids, and they were gutsy, and they were pranksy. And so they published six of these issues. And they're very interesting reading because they're, they're quite intellectual. Professors as well as students write these. And then they try to disseminate them, of course, on the sly. They wanted to get them throughout the universities. You need to know this, that the university, which claims to be this great university, of, this great society of truth, was the easiest for the Nazis to commandeer and co-opt. There was no institution in Germany that jumped into the lap of Nazism faster and more completely than the university. I was a student at Tübingen. Tübingen was a very brown university. 
Dina says, I read Kittle in German. Kittle was a pro-Nazi professor. He was the author of lots of hate Jew literature. I used to get to read him in the, tu- in the uh, Theologicum in Tübingen. They had this under lock and key. They did not want the people to know they had it. I'd read this at night after the library was closed. I had a key, turn the light on, read this, this literature, close the thing up, go, ba- go back. I read a lot of it. These young students are the only students to offer organized resistance in all of Germany. Their professor, Kurt Huber, is the only professor who was killed by the Nazis for resistance. How many Jews were killed? We don't need to recount that. How many Poles? We don't need to recount that. How many confessing Christians? Well over 600 die in concentration camps. Paul Schneider. How many trade unionists? How many communists? How many uh, homosexuals? How many Jehovah's Witnesses? Six digits for all of them. One professor. What does that tell you? That tells you that the university was so easily co-opted. I'm a university professor. Boy, there's a word of warning here. All these kids published six uh, uh, copies, six editions of the White Rose, and they disseminated most of them at the University of Munich, finally, the sixth one, and then they had a few left, and they ceased being good spies. They turned into college pranksters. They ran back in to disseminate some, the rest of them, and they got caught. The one thing you could count on with the Gestapo is they were good. They were professionals, and they just needed one mistake. It's hard not to make a mistake. And when Sophie Scholl and Hans, her brother, ran back in, they got caught. And when they got caught, of course, the entire group got exposed. They were caught on the 18th. They were all tried on the 22nd in front of a ferocious judge by the name of Roland Freiser. He was the most pro-Nazi judge. He filmed his own... um, Trials, you, some of you have seen him. He would shout people down. He would humiliate them. These prisoners would be beaten. They would be starved. They would be hungry. They wouldn't have any belts. They'd be put on big clothes so their pants would fall down. They'd be humiliated. And the shoals were brought in front of them. And Hans and Sophie, Sophie's 21 years old. Sophie says, today you judge us. Tomorrow, the world will judge you. Powerful word to say. Why did they do this? Not because they thought they could change the war. Sophie Scho said this, we can't do anything that will change this evil, but we must do something. I love that. Now, the remarkable thing about this is today that there's no schools, there's no streets, named after Adolf Hitler or Heinrich Himmler. There are 600 schools and streets and organizations that are called Hans and Sophie Scholl. I dug up her death certificate. I want to read it to you because it's a testimony in its own way. 
I got on the internet and did this. I'm so proud of myself. I'm so <laughs> bad. The only person who's worse with a computer than Dale is, is me, is Dale. Um, uh, and, but I got this. So here's how it reads. It's a page and a half. I'll read it to you. It's worth hearing. Munich, 22 February 1943, Munich Stadelheim Prison, High Command Judge of the People's Court, Warrant. Execution of sentence of death by the Special Berlin Court on the 22nd of February 1943 concerning Sophie Scholl, an unmarried female student from Forchtenberg, Germany. Those present were Reich's lawyer Weiersberg, the chief of execution. Hans Huber, the national judge of Munich Court, District 1 was there, the registrar of the national court. The above-named officials of the national court proceeded today at 5 p.m. So they were judged guilty at 3 in the afternoon by 5 p.m. They're beheaded. Don't mess with these guys. In the execute, proceeded at 5 p.m. today in the execution of the death sentence in the designated room which was covered and enclosed in the Munich Stadelheim prison. Present in the room were the prison officials, Dr. Koch, representative of the prison staff, the prison physician, chief doctor of the regime, Dr. Guber, and the executioner by the name of Reichardt, with his assistance and the necessary personnel were there to carry out the execution as absolutely required. The execution room was completely secured against visibility and access by unauthorized persons. The guillotine, concealed behind a black curtain, was fully operational. At 5 p.m., the condemned was issued in by, ushered in by two prison officials. The chief of execution assured that the identity of the person present matched that of the person accused. The condemned was then delivered to the executioner. The assistance of the executioner led the condemned to the guillotine where she was shoved under the blade. Executioner Reichardt then released the blade which instantly severed the head from the trunk of the body. The prison doctor confirmed the death. I'm glad to know that. The condemned was calm and composed. The time from the delivery of the condemned to the executioner to the fall of the blade was six seconds. The time, total time required for the execution, that is, from the time she left her cell to the fall of the blade was 48 seconds. After the use of the guillotine, the body and the head of the condemned were placed in a prepared container and delivered to the police station to be transferred to the Perlock Cemetery. Signed, Weyersberg. That's a Nazi death certificate. Um, two things strike me, perhaps they strike you as well. Three things. Number one, Sophie's name is mentioned only once and never again. Afterwards, what is she called? The Condemned. She's been defaced, denamed, and totally objectified. Number two is this obscene infatuation with detail. Six seconds. Forty-eight seconds. Who's watching their watch? Why would you watch your watch? Is this not one of the great tragedies of evil that we can find ways 
through bureaucratic trivia of evading the enormity of the evil of which we are a part. Keep those scribes writing down exactly how many seconds it took them for Sophie to get from her cell to the blade and then for it to fall and then nobody will have to ask any hard questions. This gross and perverse evil that has been converted into a bureaucratic report. But the most beautiful statement, they didn't know they were saying it. But they testified to a martyrdom. What's the one sentence that doesn't need to be in here? The condemned was calm and composed. I think that so many of us shy away from martyrdom, not because we are afraid of dying. We know we're going to have to die. but because we're afraid that we might not be brave. We might not be truthful and convicted like we would like to be. And if you worry about that, that's probably an indication you're a very good Christian. So I'm going to come back to Luke. Luke's gospel portrays Jesus on the cross slightly differently than Mark's does and Matthew's. Both Mark and Matthew have this cry of dereliction, don't they? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's really a brutal cry. That's not in Luke. On the cross, Jesus is composed. He said, God, this is the prayer from Psalm 37, I think. Into your hands, I and trust my spirit. I pray that prayer almost every night and every morning that I get up. I don't know what's going to happen this day or this night. I, I entrust myself to God. That's what Jesus does on the cross. Luke tells us that this business of martyrdom is not terror. It is a point in which we can expect the presence and the assurance of God. I want you I want me to go with that. Sophie Scholl dies calm and composed. She's not shattered. She's not broken. She's a 21-year-old girl. Christ is her strength. and he will be yours. Let's pray. Father, forgive us when we fear martyrdom. Help us to embrace it, not because we wish to die, but because we wish to live. And we wish to live by confessing you. And so may the words of our mouth, may the meditations of our heart, and may the 
actions of our lives be wholly acceptable to you, transparent of you, and witness for you in life and in death. Amen. Okay, great.